Good morning. From the book of Numbers, chapter 21, and then I'm going to read another text from the book of John. Numbers 21.4 starts, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people became impatient on the way. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent poisonous serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many Israelites died. That constitutes a bad day. The people came to Moses and said, we have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord to take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a poisonous serpent or an image of one. Set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. And so Moses made a serpent of bronze and put it upon a pole And whenever a serpent bit anyone or bit someone, that person would look at the serpent of bronze and live. And then John's Gospel, chapter 3. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the word of the Lord. What I want to address this morning is this problem that we run into quite a lot within ourselves and others of misusing or even sometimes ignoring biblical texts. Um, I love the Bible. It, I have since I've been a kid. And it's, it's this book full of genres. It's actually a book of books. It's an anthology of books, the Bible is. And it, it has all these different kinds of writings, narrative history, genealogies, laws, poetry, proverbs, oracles, these, these sort of riddles and drama and biographical sketches and parables and letters and sermons and apocalypses. There's got all kind of stuff in it. I want to say that it's magical, but I'm a little nervous about saying that. It's definitely a mystical book in that it, the person who comes with a believing heart, you experience life from it and wonder, and, and grace, and power, and comfort, all from this written text. There's something about it. Believers treasure the Bible. I mean, ever since uh, the Gutenberg Press was invented, the first words that it produced were the words of the Bible. And since then, since that day, it has been the number one best-selling book in history. Till this day, it still is the number one best-selling book in the world. However... I think that we've done a disservice to people by suggesting to them or giving them the impression that the Bible is easy, that it's simple to understand, easy to apply. I think that's a miscommunication because, I mean, it's kind of like saying marriage is easy. 
right? I mean, certainly marriage can be wonderful, but it's not ever easy, right? Two people coming together, sharing their lives, like putting two McDonald milkshakes in one cup. There's some spillage. The same is true for the Bible. I mean, understanding is often very difficult, and there's some texts that just seem impossible to comprehend. You don't understand why they're in there. A lot of times the background isn't giving. This appearance of a text shows up, and you're going, what? Theologians wrestle with it. People wrestle with it. Uh, This is why throughout history so many people have used and misused the Bible in, in so many horrible ways. Use them in good ways, misuse it in bad ways. It's hard to imagine, but the same sacred scriptures that have brought unspeakable comfort and blessing to millions and millions of people are the same text. It's the same Bible that's used to bring pain and horror and even death to people. (laughs) The Bible used to be used to justify these instruments that were used in the Inquisition, where the heretics, you say, who's the heretic? It's, It's the Christian who disagreed with the Christian that was in charge. And they would, they would take these iron collars that had spikes on the inside so when they closed the iron collar on the neck, it would impinge into the neck of the, quote, heretic so they would lose their voices, stab it into their necks. And they would put them on these, these uh, kind of stretching machines where they would tie their hands and tie their feet and stretch them until they pulled their arms literally out of socket and off of their bodies or their legs. All of this done in the name of God, of course. Throughout history, the Bible has been used to defend violence against minorities and to validate slavery and to dominate women and to hurt and oppress Jews and abortionists and gays and any other group that was perceived as a threat. The Bible has been used to against them. When faced with the possibility of war, you've got one group of people on this side that say, use the Bible to share why we should always go to war and defend. And then the opposite aisle uh, of the ideological eye, another group uses the same Bible to prove that we should never go to war, ever. So, who's right? Well, I'm going to tell you this morning who's right. How do we use the book? I mean, maybe a better question is, how do we not misuse it so much? That's what I want to talk about. So, first of all, I think we need to start by realizing that all of us, every one of us, misuses the Bible on some level. I mean, Paul is the one who said in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see through a glass, how? Darkly. All of us which means we don't see all that well. It means that there's no way that we see and understand things perfectly, which means we don't always get it right. We may get a lot of it right, but, but on some level we need to understand we probably don't get it all right, which should add some kind of a sense of humility in our hearts. There's a number of reasons why we don't get it right. I mean, one is because I think we kind of naturally gravitate to what theologians would call a canon within a canon, right? Or a canon within a canon. The canon is the texts that, that kind of give us the kind of the outside of a jigsaw puzzle is the canon. Well, we have canons within it. What that means is that we think some Bible verses are more important than other Bible verses, right? So for instance, this morning we read out of the book of Numbers. Those of you who love the Bible, my guess is you tend to read the New Testament, Psalms and Proverbs, you know, that kind of thing. But, but how many of you have not spent the last six months meditating deeply on the book of Numbers or the Song of Solomon or Ecclesiastes? 
How many of you have never, don't lift up your hand. How many of you have never read the book of Ecclesiastes? Okay, so. <laughs> My point is, is that we tend to naturally move to certain texts that we think are more important. And the, what's crazy is not every group agrees on the same inside canon. I grew up in a tradition where Paul was the most important person to read. So most of my Bible meditations were on the letters of Paul. There's some uh, traditions that they focus mostly on the Gospels. Jesus' words, the parables of Jesus, the story of the Gospel is, is their most important focus. There's some traditions that focus, and they're Christians, but they focus mostly on the ethics and the teachings and the characters of the Old Testament. And most of the time when you enter their context, they're usually talking about some ethical principle from the Old Testament. So each group is right in some ways, but no one is right in all ways. And on some level, that means that we have to admit that we're misusing the text to some degree. The second reason I think why this is true, that we misuse sacred text, is because we have opinions. How many of you have opinions? Yes, I have many opinions. And opinions color our view of texts. And it causes us to see things that aren't there and to not see things that are there. Years back, this is back in the 80s, um, uh, when we were pastoring, I, I, I saw on TV that there was these kind of sunglasses. They were called blue blockers. And uh, so I ordered them on TV, right? I ordered them off the TV, one 800 whatever it was, and got the blue blockers. I was excited about it because they were pretty dark, and I wore contacts, and so it was bright sun. I could put on those, those glasses, and, and it was wonderful to drive with them. But what I didn't realize was how they skewed what you saw color-wise. They kind of made you colorblind in a way because they pulled out the blue. They were blue blockers, right, as seen on TV. <laughs> so uh, we're going to St. Louis, and Gail always liked the blue Wrigley's spirit, gum, the blue, the blue pack. And so, you know, we were heading out. I stopped at the gas station. She said, would you give me some gum? I said, sure. Ran in, got the gum, came back out, threw it on the dash, and we're driving down the road, and Gail picks it up, and she goes, why'd you get this? This kind. I said, what do you mean? I'm driving. She said, I like the blue pack. And I'm looking, and it, it's blue. I said, Gail, that's blue. She looks at it again. She said, Edwin, this is not blue. I said, this is blue. She said, take off the blue blockers. <laughs> and sure enough, it was a green pack. How did I miss it? Blue blockers. See, we have blue blockers. As we read text, classic example. Some of you will not relate to this. Some of you will really relate to this. I grew up in the 60s, born in the 50s, grew up as a kid in the 60s, um, graduated in the early 70s from high school. So I'm, I'm, it's, I'm a 60s kid. And when we grew up, I grew up in, in middle America, in rural America, in Wisconsin. And uh, so in our context, in the milieu of our thought, Tattoos weren't very frequent. And when you saw it, the only people that had tattoos, I mean, they're very popular now, but back in that time, when you had a tattoo, you were either a renegade biker who was disobeying the law, a prostitute, or someone that's really problematic, right? You're a rebel of some sort. Nobody got tattoos. You didn't get tattoos. So I'm marching along in life, you know, reading the Bible, through the Bible and stuff. And I ran into this verse in Leviticus 19.28. It says, do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. And I remember reading that. And I thought, yes, you and me, God, we agree tattoos are bad. I mean, can you feel it? I mean, it's just like the word came alive in my spirit. I found out that... The more opinionated you are, the more Bible verses do this inside you. 
the ones that agree with your opinion. And the ones that don't, they seem to sort of be not read and seen. So I'm alive with my bluebucker. And I got into the early 80s. I'm pastoring a church. You know, we're pastoring our first church in Wisconsin. We have a day school, and it's about 85, 86. And this gal, who was our kindergarten teacher in the day school, came to me and showed me she had gotten a tattoo. And we had heard some complaints around the families that she had a tattoo. She's a kindergarten teacher. And, you know, she wasn't married, which means something was wrong with her. Aren't you glad times are changing? And, and she had a tattoo. Now, she was working with children. She, she's an example. And I'm thinking, the word of God says thou, you, you shouldn't tattoo mark yourself. It's right in the Bible. And before I opened my big mouth and started touting that and thought about dismissing her, I went back and read this text. I said, I better read that text again. And look what it says in the verse right before It talks about tattoos. It says, put it up there if you would. Do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. And then it talks about tattoos. And I thought, oh my gosh, if I'm going to obey no tattoos, I've got to grow the side, I've got to grow these side mullets. I'm going to have to walk around with side mullets and then I've got to get this big scraggly beard that I can't even trim. This isn't going to work. Great tattoo, by the way. (laughs) See, our opinions, they color and make us see texts in ways that are unfaithful. Not only do we sometimes come alive with texts we shouldn't come alive with, we obviate texts we shouldn't ignore. Classic example of that. 1 Corinthians 16, 20. This is the word of the Lord. Watch. All the brothers and sisters here send your greeting. Greet one another with a holy kiss. 2 Corinthians 13, 12. Greet one another with a holy kiss. 1 Thessalonians 5, 26. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. 1 Peter 5, 14. Greet one another with a kiss of love. In the mouth of three or four witnesses, every word is established except this one. We don't do this. Why? We don't do this. Our opinion is verses like this aren't important. Now, am I suggesting we should? No, <laughs> I'm not. I actually believe that there's some kinds of texts that are really more cultural than they are, and we have an equivalent to it. But see, understand, that takes a little exegesis, and it takes a little doing some philology, doing some historical understanding, and digging into it a little bit to try to come up with why. But we should find at least some way that we're being faithful to it, even if we're not doing it exactly the same way. But it's not easy. I don't ignore it because I just ignore it. That's not appropriate, right? Here's another example of that, of verses we don't see. This is Matthew 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and giving thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take and eat. This is sort of like my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day that I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. There's a a number of things that we could talk about, how the Eucharistic meal, the Lord's table, is kind of scandalous. 
uh, in the early church's mindset and to us in this day. But one of the ways that we don't often talk about is the fact when Jesus does this, not only does he say this disruptive thought, this is my body without explaining it, he also, even though they're all sitting there and eating and drinking, have their own cups, he basically takes his cup and says, okay, let's all drink from this cup. I mean, just as it is today, I mean, their culture had an aversion to drinking out of your cup. We have our own cups, right? I mean, the only people that drink out of the same cup with me is usually my wife, my kids, or maybe a really close friend that doesn't look like they have a cold. <laughs> I might say, taste this, right? And I usually prefer that it would be alcohol if I drank alcohol. Jesus did turn water into grape juice. <clears throat> the point here is that, that this cup thing, when Jesus says, drink of my cup, not yours, but mine, this cup thing turns out to have deeper implications for discipleship when you dive into the exegesis of the text. Because what Jesus is saying, this whole cup thing, it, it, you remember he says in Mark 10 when these guys were asking, can I be in charge with you, Jesus, when you take over? And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink? Can you share in the cup I share? And you remember in Gethsemane, it says in Matthew 26, going a little farther, he falls on the face and he prays on the ground, Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me yet not as I will, but you will. This notion of sharing the cup of Jesus has some deep implications. But most of us would never even consider drinking out of the same cup. Right? And sometimes what happens is we miss what the scriptures are trying to tell because we have opinion about germs, we have opinion about it's too odd, we have opinion, we just would rather change the subject so we don't deal with it. Again, I don't know exactly what we should do, but we should at least be honest enough to say we are skewed about stuff. Our opinions cause us to misuse texts sometimes and ignore texts sometimes. It just is what it is. I mean, that doesn't mean you're a horrible person. I mean, historically, lots of famous godly people got it right and they got it wrong. Martin Luther, amazing guy, brilliant. He hated Jews. John Calvin, brilliant, got a lot of things right. He fought for the burning of heretics at the stake. George Whitfield, the famous evangelist who helped to, to sort of spark America's famous Great Awakening where huge numbers, tens of thousands of people rushed to Christ to surrender their lives to Christ. He was a lobbyist for slavery. So I'm suggesting we get it right a lot of times, but we get it wrong sometimes. That on some level, when we approach the truth, we ought to have a little more humility. And when somebody screams, it's in the Bible, that doesn't necessarily make me confident. I mean, that they're right. I mean, especially if they're passionate, especially if they've got super confidence. It gives me a little more dread because I, it just seems like they're running at you with blue blockers on their face. Another reason we, we kind of can't help but misuse text is, is because sacred text often has multiple meanings. It doesn't just have the obvious meaning. It has another meaning. Sometimes the other meaning that's not so straightforward is the most important reading of the text. 
So that comes to our reading today. We're reading about this story in Numbers, such an odd story. These Jews, they've been freshly rescued from Egypt. They're out in the wilderness complaining because they don't, there's not, doesn't need to be enough water, enough food. And, and, and they're complaining that God brought them out there to die. And in the process of that, God responds by sending poisonous snakes to them. And a bunch of them die. I don't even know what to do with that story. Right? I mean, is God just mad at people? Right? You say you have a little complaint, the next thing you know, you find snakes in your house. I mean, how does that even make sense? And it's very interesting. In the early church, this was one of the problems that those that came out of the Jewish, not the Jewish milieu, and out of the Jewish story, the people that came from outside, the Greeks, the ones that weren't part of Jewish life at all, they came in, and when they started resourcing the Old Testament, they're reading stories like this and going, What? And they'd read about how God anointed them to wipe out whole groups of people, genocide. They go, what? And there was a whole group of people, one of them, one of the key leaders back in the second century, early second century, 120, uh, was a guy named Marcion. And he said, there's no way that the God that that Old Testament is describing is the same God of our Lord Jesus Christ. They're not the same. There's no way they can be the same person. That God back there is, 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 is um, reactive and unloving and unkind. And so he came up with the notion that Jesus came to introduce a God that was previously unknown. That the true God was not the same God of the Jews, that the God of the Jews was a demiurge, which means he's this lesser God who was the one that created everything and everything is evil. And we have to open ourselves up to the God that Christ was trying to reveal to us. Well, the church said, no, Marcion. It was a very provocative thought. It was trying to address these issues. But the church said, no, 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 no. God Almighty is the one who created everything and creation is good. And Jesus came in the flesh. And flesh, they thought flesh was evil. But no, he came in the flesh. And so what they said was, we may not understand all that happened back there, but we know Jesus revealed the God who is good and he is the God of all creation. So the church basically created a kind of space of suspension saying, we don't understand all of that, but that's okay. Some of us can't do that. We need to do that. So in our story, what happens is Jesus, it says that, they, that, they, that, that God sent these, these poisonous snakes, a bunch of them die, Moses prays, God tells Moses to put a pole up and put a serpent on the pole, put a serpent on the pole, the thing that was killing them, put that on the pole, not the Ten Commandments image, not an image of the Ark of the Covenant that was hopeful and of God's presence, but a serpent on the pole. The thing that was killing them was to be put on the pole, and when they looked at the thing that was killing them, somehow it healed them. And then Jesus says, as Moses in John 3 lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. See, I'm sure Jesus was interested in that story about Moses, but what he, and what actually happened, but, but he uses this text in a completely different way. He basically says it happened, but he claims that something more was happening than what happened. That somehow he claimed that that recorded event was predictive of another event, an event that was more important than what actually happened. And it was predictive of this event in the future where the Messiah would be put up on the pole and that he would be like a serpent. Why would he be called the serpent? Because he took on the sin of the world. Paul said, Jesus became sin so that we might be made righteous. 
Jesus becomes the serpent on the pole. And Jesus is basically saying, look it, that's what's going on. He was saying that sacred text often communicates on more than one level. It may communicate actual events and actual ideas, but sometimes it communicates something more, and oftentimes the something more is more important than the event itself. Jesus uses texts like this from the Old Testament a lot. In Matthew 12, he talks about Jonah, and he references the event, but he says Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of this huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He basically is saying, you can see what happened here, but don't try to figure it out. Don't try to judge God. Don't try to get it all together. Realize that so many of these events that happened are simply predictive of events that would happen in this moment. Not only did Jesus use texts prophetically, he used them to show less obvious meanings. He used them to show more foundational meanings, like the Sabbath. If you were a Jew, dude, you did the Sabbath. It was one of the big ten the Decalogue. One of them is, is, is Exodus 20. Remember to keep the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. According to the Torah, there was this perpetual command of Sabbath that every seventh day you were to rest. And most thought about this text, about what they could do and what they could not do. What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to not do? Right? That kind of idea. Most thought this text was, a, was basically to be obeyed externally. And so you had all these guys roaming around. They were called the Pharisees. And they were basically trying to make sure that everybody was, keep, was obeying what the word of God said. Today we call ourselves evangelicals. <laughs> or parents. Now see here. This is what you're supposed to be doing. Now don't misunderstand me. There's a lot of stuff we're supposed to do and not do. But if we're not careful, we'll miss the reason why will miss the greater meanings of these things and miss the heart of God. So here's a story with Jesus in Mark 2 about the Sabbath. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and as disciples walked along, they began to pick heads of grain. They weren't supposed to do that. It was against the Sabbath. And notice Jesus doesn't do it. They're just doing it. They're just eating away, you know, walking through the, uh, the grain fields, eating popcorn. And the Pharisees said, look, look here. Why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? Here's the question. Were they right? Were the Pharisees right? Yeah, they were right. But they were right in a wrong way. See, many people are absolutely true on one level and completely wrong on another. And Jesus answered them when they said this to him. The disciples crack corn and I don't care. <laughs> That's the southern version. <laughs> Bad, I know. Jesus said, have you never read what David did when he and his companions, watch this, were hungry and in need? See, notice that, that Jesus sees more than what people do. He sees people. Their motivations, their fears, their needs, their confusions. He sees them more than what he sees that they do. And in the days, he brings up the story of David, of Abiathar, the high priest, when David entered the house of God and he eats this bread he wasn't supposed to eat, naughty, which is only lawful for priests. And he's eating. And not only did he eat, he gave it to his companions. And then listen to what Jesus says. He said to them, the Sabbath, the central principle, ethical principle, 
of Jews. The Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. What he's basically saying is, listen, God did not come up with things for people to do and then yell at them for not doing it. He came up with things that would help people. And he brings them into our lives, not to hurt people with what he intended to help people. It's like a chair. You know, if you, if, if, if you, you all know the chairs. What are chairs for? I just saw a show uh, this, uh, recently where there's this guy who is all upset because his child has been killed. And he's standing there and the police are trying to come. And he's standing there with a shotgun and he's not letting the police come. He's in the wrong. But he's standing there. He's in the wrong with a shotgun. And the longer he stands there, the drama keeps unfolding. And somebody brings him a chair. And so even though he's in the wrong, they bring him a chair. Why? Because they're basically saying, you, you, you may be wrong. You may be wrong what you're doing here. But take a load off. They were trying to help him. See, what we understand is that people are all kind of in the wrong. But we're not supposed to take chairs and just, you know, sort of, you know, when we run into someone that's standing, come here, you know, we run into somebody that's standing, we're thinking, no, you're supposed to be sitting. I mean, God designed you to sit. So why aren't you, why aren't you sitting? Why aren't you sitting on the chair? Is that what we do? Is that what we do? That's exactly what we do. But what we should really do is when we see somebody standing is just simply put that there. You don't even have to sit down. If he stands for a long time disobeying the chair, that's okay. The chair's there for him. He was not made for the chair. The chair was made for him. People were not made for truth. Truth was made for people. Thanks. (laughs) If I see you standing up, I'm whoop you. (laughs) See, when we focus on what people do instead of the bigger picture that they're worth something to God, we do what Jesus described as straining at gnats and swallowing camels. <coughs> that was actually a hilarious statement. People had to go fall out loud when that happened. I mean, that would be like saying, you know, uh, when we go to Thanksgiving dinner, somebody grabs a, a turkey, the whole turkey, and goes <coughs> in one swallow. And then in the next moment takes a pea and puts it in their mouth and starts going, you know, the international choke symbol. How could you swallow the whole turkey and, and strain on a pea? That's a funny image. And Jesus was saying, there's people that in their dealings, they swallow whole camels. They'll swallow mercy and kindness and forgiveness and that people are made in the image of God and they'll strain that they're not doing something perfectly. It's only when you see truth in this way when you look for the heart of the matter, that's what enabled the church in the 18th century to lead the charge on abolishing slavery. Because if, it's, if you go right down to it, slavery is validated in the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament. It's it, it is absolutely validated there. It's part, it was part of the fabric of the ancient world. Jesus nor the apostles ever challenged slavery. All they said was, be kind to another within that system. Do what you can within this. They never decried the system. So this may surprise you, but it was Christian ministers who believed the Bible should be followed literally that were the ones that wrote nearly half of the defenses pro-slavery in the 17th and 18th centuries. 
they often cited scripture to make their case. So much so that they said, if you deny slavery to the people, you're actually making the word of God of none effect. If you can't stand on this and say slavery is our right, then how can you stand on anything the Bible says? That's how explicit the Bible is about slavery. Quote from Reverend Leonard Bacon in 1846, the evidence that there were both slaves and masters of slaves and churches founded and directed by the apostles cannot be got rid of without resorting to methods of interpretation that will rid of, that will get rid of everything. <laughs> Does that logic sound familiar to you? The Bible says this. The Bible says that. If we give way on this idea, we might as well throw out the Bible. See, that's not true. Sometimes we have to move forward as a community of faith and realize there were some things that were happening in certain cultures that don't happen in this culture. And we have to be discerning enough to ask the question, what's the greater principle? The greater principle is not whether slavery is validated. Is does anyone have the right to own a person? The greater question is, isn't everyone in the likeness and the image of God? And how can we ever accept slavery even though it was part of the culture? Does that mean it's right? These are deeper questions that I don't think there's anyone in here that wants to go back to slavery. And yet, it's in the Bible. Again, this is, it's, it's this kind of idea that we unintentionally misuse and ignore deeper truths of Scripture that keep it keeps me from writing people off. <laughs> I choose to look past the ways people act to the deeper truth that God declares everyone has worth, that Jesus took on the sin of the world. So whether people are strong or weak or rich or pure or beautiful or ugly as manatees or, or smart or dumb or holy or unholy or Republican or Democrat or gay or straight or whatever they are, what a person thinks and what a person does, it, I'm not saying that it's not important, but it's not more important than the super truth that Jesus Christ is loving them without condition, without restraint, without limit. How can I not love them? So I need to shut down with this. Let me just give you three little suggestions that will help you not be so weird with the Bible. Okay? Uh, it's a real simple thing. Number one, as I've already suggested, be humble. Realize you just are weird and that you're missing. All of us are missing sacred text in some way, ignoring it in some degree, and just be honest enough to listen to maybe hopefully take off the blue blockers. Number two, use James 3 as a lens for how you look at things. This is a beautiful text in James 3.13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Who's got it? Who has a truth? Who understands something in their lives? then let them show it by finding many Bible verses that prove their point. <laughs> Is that what it says? It's so interesting to me that when he says you're wise and understanding, he never in this text says whether or not the actual information you're wise about is legitimate. He simply just says, if you're wise and understanding, make sure you wrap it with a different kind of attitude and life. Make sure you wrap that understanding, wrap that wisdom in a good life with deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you're like bitter in some way or envious or have this ambition going on, you boast about the truth. You actually deny the truth. You make the truth a lie. You actually make the very truth of God a lie. You say, well, how can you do that? You can't make the word of God a lie. Oh, no. 
What about Lucifer? What about Satan in the guard or in the in the um, uh, temptation in the wilderness that comes to Jesus? What uh, does the Satan do? What is he quoting constantly? Scripture. He's quoting the word of God. The word of God was in the lips of the Satan, twisting it. Do not tell me people who quote the Bible are never doing anything but telling people the truth. We deny the truth. He says, such wisdom does not come from heaven, even if it's biblical. It's earthly, unspiritual, demonic for where you have envy and selfish ambition, you're trying to up somebody, put somebody else down, affirm your own opinions. There you have disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. It doesn't say biblical, even though it's important to be biblical. Is but first of all pure, peace-loving, considerate. In other words, try to understand what's going on in that person's life. Submissive. It's that Greek word hupotasso, which means you rank yourself under to lift people. It's submissive, full of mercy, full of mercy. You're driving down here 30 miles an hour in Jenks, America. 30 miles an hour out here. And if you're zooming down 30 miles an hour, or you're zooming down 75 miles an hour and the policeman pulls you over, what are you going to say? Justice! How many of you will not cry for justice? What will you cry for? Mercy. The only time you cry justice is if you're going 30 and they pull you over for going 75. He says, oh, no, 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 I was going 30. Right. He says that we are pulling people over that are doing the wrong thing and we're full of mercy and good fruit. We're impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace, they're the ones that end up reaping right. See, we think if we want to make things right, we got to get tough. No, no, no. You want to make things right? Sow things in peace with a good life that's submissive and honoring of other people. This takes some time. And then the last thing that we do, I think, is employ what Augustine would call the principle of privation, principle of Privation. What that means is he writes this book called The City of God. It's a huge book, 1,200 some odd pages. It should have been written in 150. So if you're ever tormented by this book, or the, the thesis of the book, basically, is that you're in a world, the, 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 the uh, city of God it represents God's kingdom, and one day the city of God will come to the earth. One day when Jesus returns, the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. So one day there will be the city of God here, but we represent that city. We're citizens of another country, another place. And so when we're standing in the world, we come up against what he calls the city of Cain. And the city of Cain is disruptive and disobedient, and there's a lot about the city of Cain that we find abhorrent. And so what Augustine is addressing is, what do you do with the city of Cain when you're part of the city of God and you don't, you can't stand what they do? You hate their procedures. You hate the injustice. What do you do? See, Augustine says you can't run from them because you're in the world with them. You may not be of them, but you're with them. So find what you can agree with. The privation means find the smallest place. Find the things you can agree. It might be out of a thousand things. It might be one or two things. Find those one or two things and simply move toward them and love them. Don't fight over the stuff you don't agree. Find the things in which you can agree. Here, and here's my point. As a pastor for over the, 35 years, I think this year, um, I, I've met all kinds of people, as you can imagine, who are living in ways 
that I perceive are not faithful to the gospel. Greedy people, proud people who always feel bad than everybody else, gossips, liars. Uh, you'll meet people that, that come and you realize they're, they're, they're uh, sometimes living together as married people that aren't married. Sometimes they're older people who've been married two or three times, have given up on marriage, just say, well, I just want to be with somebody. And when, when, it, when I hear things like that and I understand what I understand from Scripture, sometimes I have this internal kind of, I should, I, what do I do here? I, I mean, I, I need to address that, right? So my impulse to address them and go after the problem is the first impulse. But I always stop based on what I've just told you. And I always, I always lean into what I see that's good. I always try to find the thing. They came to church. That's awesome. They have a nice smile. That's awesome. They shook my hand. That's awesome. I mean, I try to find whatever I can find that I lean into them with. And, and I always expect one of three things to happen. I trust this. One is either they'll become alerted to whatever it is that concerned me simply because they're around the family of God and having encounters with God. It's so interesting to me. The more you face God and the more you see him, the more you see yourself. So here's Peter one time. He sees Jesus. It's one of the first times he meets Jesus and actually talks with him. He, he encounters Jesus, and the first thing he says after the encounter is, go away from me, I'm a sinful man. <laughs> see, because the more you see yourself, the more you see, the more you see God, the more you see yourself. So sometimes when you meet somebody that's all mixed up and is doing all the wrong things, you don't have to say a word. You just love them, you smile at them, you welcome them, you embrace them, and God changes them over time. You leave it alone. Second thing that possibly can happen is sometimes I, I, I trust that if that doesn't happen, that I'll get enough leadership currency in their lives by leaning into the things I can agree with them on. That at some point I know I can address it with them. And they know that when I address it with them, I am not addressing it as, as, as kind of a rejection or as a judgment. They're confident enough because I have given them enough space of love and acceptance. They know they feel safe and I can talk to them and they open their hearts to me. Or the third thing that sometimes happens is as I lean into some people is I realize what I judged as pride was really hurt. What I judged as greed was really something else. It was this intention to make a difference in the world that was actually quite holy. It's just they were a little rough around the edges. And what ends up happening is I have a different perception of them. Here's my thesis, my point this morning. Be careful how you look at people and be careful when you hear someone scream, that's wrong, it's in the Bible. Or this, I think this, and it's in the Bible. You should always not go, really? You should always go, really? And step back and think and discern and love. Let's stand. Take another deep breath. Lord, we live in a world where there's all kinds of people doing all kinds of things that are not right. And it's so easy to want to slam chairs on their heads. But help us to lovingly, kindly, persistently see the greater truths that you love everyone, that you're for them. And that the reason you call us to certain ways of living is because those ways of living make life safer. And those ways of living make us more effective as human beings, making us more human. 
And help us not take the truth and turn it into a lie with our judgments, our meanness, our envy, our over-persistence. Help us love people and be your representatives in the world. Help us, we pray, through Christ our Lord. And everyone said, Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.